When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, Holly. Hello, Dave. What is going on today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? Well, on the What Difference Does It Make podcast today, how about we just skate away right into our intro? Wow. Okay. So when you say skate away, that is a Dire Straits song. And I believe we are talking to the bassist. And who might that be, Holly? We are talking to John Ilsley, the bassist from Dire Straits. He has a new book called My Life in Dire Straits, and it is quite obviously a memoir. Uh, yeah, uh, John is, uh, besides Mark Knopfler, he is the only member of the band to play on each and every track in the Dire Straits catalog and also play every single show Dire Straits has ever played. So let's welcome John Ilsley to the What Difference Does It Make studio. Hello. I'll just press the right button. Hold on one second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there we go. Oh, look at you. Welcome, John Ilsley. So you're Holly and you're... I'm Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello, John. Hello. Thank you for and joining welcome. us. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. I don't get to talk to America very often these days. Oh, really? That's interesting. So it's, a, it's a nice thing to do. Yeah. Oh, it's I'm nice surprised. It's near the accent. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, we're here in L.A., and your book, My Life in Dire Straits, opens up in Los Angeles. You're, you're about to play the Roxy. Or was it 80? Uh, well, I think it was, I think it was 1978. Oh, it was 78. Okay. I mean, the Roxy is equivalent to our marquee club, what we used to have in London in, in Wardour Street, where literally everybody played. Everybody went on that stage at some point. So the Roxy had a certain kudos for us, which was slightly nerve wracking, actually, I must say, because you never know who's going to be there. As it turned out, quite a lot of people who we weren't expecting turned up. And uh, it turned into a, a pretty interesting evening, to say the least. You did comment about a lot of industry because it's Los Angeles. A lot of industry people come to see you. Uh, yes. I mean, look, it's the same in London, you know. And the thing is, I think there was a, there was already a bit of a buzz about the band. I suppose we were expecting a few people to put their heads around the door, but we weren't really expecting Bob Dylan and Rod Stewart <laughs> to turn up, to be frank. Right. <laughs> or, or Governor Jerry Brown at that moment. Um, With his date, uh, Linda Ronstadt. Linda Ronstadt, of course, yeah. I mean, that was yeah, and, that was um, California's. Um, that was our monarchy back then. Was Jerry Brown yeah. and Linda Ronstadt? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, one felt very um, humbled actually by that. I think uh, you know you you don't you don't think you're going to attract those kind of people that early on in your in your time in the music. I, I hate to call it a career. I nearly said career. I don't like the word career because it's not really a career. It's just 
It's just a thing you do. For your life? You know I mean? Isn't that a career? If you're doing this for your entire life, doesn't that make it a career? Uh, well, the thing about the careers is you kind of stop them, don't you? The thing about rock and roll music is you just carry on until somebody up there says it's enough. It's <laughs> a good point. I mean, it is a career because it is what you do. And it's a, an easier way to refer to it, I guess. But you're right, because a career usually has a, reti- a start and a retirement. But that's that's also true. And I also, I, I try to avoid the word journey in the book as well, because oh. it's, so, it's so overused now. But trying to find another word instead of journey, it's, it's, it's quite tricky. Anyway, I mean, to go back to the Roxy for a moment, if you meet these people who, you, who have been your mentors, really, for all the, especially Bob, uh, Bob Dylan, it's a bit like sort of meeting the Dalai Lama or something. If you're a very religious person, you know, you'd sort of, you'd be slightly um, difficult to put words into a sentence in a sensible way. As it was, Bob was very open and, uh, you know, uh, I think he said something like, you've got a real good sound going there. You know, <laughs> a man of uh, not many words. And then, of course, he entertained us very well in the, in the hotel room for about two or three hours, which was quite extraordinary. Yeah, I tried to picture Bob Dylan inviting you back to the hotel with him. I know. <laughs> Yeah, you're kind of pinching yourself like, what? okay, what's going on? But was this kind of an audition for uh, for Mark and and Pick? Because eventually they ended up uh, playing with him for for the Slow Train Coming tour. I don't think it was an audition as such. I just think that, you know, Bob's, I think Bob, it's probably, as we know, a pretty spontaneous person. And I think he'd, he'd already checked out Mark's playing, or and, and that's why he came to see the band. And he did like the sound of the band. He, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. I, I think he wanted to, you know, get Mark involved in what he was doing. He felt there was a sort of a, a bit of a soulmate there, I, I suspect. And I think he, he he loved Pick's drumming. You know, I would have loved to have joined joined them, but I I didn't get the invite. <laughs> That's that's all right. Um, That's all right. That's okay. That's life. Yeah. Right. You could just call him up now and ask him if he wants to jam. (laughs) Yeah. Bob's Bob's back on the road. He's touring. He's uh, he's touring the states again. He's doing his never-ending tour, which goes on and on. He that yeah. This is not. This is as you mentioned. He's going to go on until until they say no more. That's it. Well, he's a troubadour. I mean, the thing is that nobody sets the rules in rock and roll. There aren't any rules. I don't think anybody really expected to last quite so, or the people involved in it. I know we've lost a few on the way, but there's still, you know, a lot of people in their 70s and, you know, like the Stones, I mean, they're, they're out at the moment. It's extraordinary. Probably doing it in a fairly comfortable way, I suspect. But right. even so, I mean, I, I know how exhausting it is, where even when you're fit, let alone when you're, you know, you're pushing your mid-70s. Talk yeah. about how trying it can be on the road. I did get a very good sense of the tour, how grinding it can be, how tedious it, you know, fun, of course, but how tedious it can be. You painted a very, very vivid picture of it. I think most people in bands would understand that. I mean, it's sheer joy. It's obviously sheer joy playing, but there's all the bits in between can get very, you know, very, very difficult to deal with sometimes. And I, and especially when you are, you know, away from your loved ones and your family, I think that's the, that's the toughest bit, but also, 
it's a bit like doing a play every night sometimes. You know, you, 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 you people step on stage and they play Hamlet every night and they say the same words every night and they make the same gestures and they move across the stage in the same way. In some aspects, performing all those dates one after the other is a bit like being in, in a part of a, a play or a movie. You, you know, you, you do the same things. And all I could say about that is, thank God we had some great songs to play because... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I can safely say I never got tired of playing these songs, which says a lot for the for the quality of the music, you know. And it felt a real pleasure to be able to do that night after night and still feel something for what they represented, you know, for not just for the band, but for other people as well. Because it's a music, when you're playing live especially, it's a sort of a, it's a, it's a wonderful exchange of um, emotions between the audience and the band. And I really got that. And I tried to get that across in the book, really, you know, because it's the most extraordinary tool music. It's, it gives an enormous amount of pleasure all over the world. And you kind of forget that, really, especially now with the, with the internet and pressing buttons and it all comes at you. But I think that, you know, you've got to remember that element of communication between the band and the audience is really significant. There's no comparison. The there's nothing like live me seeing live music. And I think we're all going crazy for it now, you know, as we're able to get back out into the world. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I did a gig on Saturday night. I just, I got the band out and we played in this tiny club in South London, which was like a little speakeasy place. Yeah, And it was so cool. And I thought, oh, this is so, I mean, I think there was about 120 people there or something. <laughs> and it was very full of the 120 people, let me tell you. Yeah, but it was so nice just be sitting down, and we just sat down and played some acoustic songs, and it was just great. I loved it, absolutely loved it, and they seemed to like it too. So I mean, you know, it is it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do. I mean, you know, it's the best game in town, really. <laughs> I mean, you say you're playing the same music night after night, but the I mean, the the music is you know the bass and the drum have to lock in. But was there room for improvisation? You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. like you go in the Telegraph Road and like okay, what's not going to sound exactly the no. same? Was there were there times that, that like, okay, let's expand on this or ad-libbing? Yeah. Well, exactly. Yes. I mean, that, uh, you, you make a very valid point. I mean, the thing is for the bass and the drums, you know, our job is to keep the engine room, you know, <laughs> running at the, at the same temperature and the same sort of uh, feel and everything else on top of that, you know, keyboards and, and especially guitar playing and a wonderful Paul Franklin on pedal steel, you know, on the last tour was, and I don't think, I don't think Paul Franklin played the same solo out of 248 shows. And I was standing <laughs> oh, right in front of him. <laughs> and so, I mean, what a delight that was. Right. And Mark, you know, would, would, would stretch out quite naturally because that, but you, you, in a sense, you have to recognize there are certain roles in bands where you've got to, you know, you know what your job is. It's very pleasurable to have that. In a sense, it's a great sense of power when the bass and the drums lock in and it's it's just solid you know the foundations are like the rock solid important i loved um just the the start of your book just uh, about your life initially uh, first of all i loved you sh- you had a picture of your parents yeah. wilfred and bubbles these are yeah. two good looking people i, I was like usually <laughs> usually you look at old photos and they look you know just dowdy you know it's just, yeah it's just like but i was looking at this photo like my god what these are two good looking people john you're very yeah, my cool. mother my mother my mother was a stunner i i, <laughs> I did i did find her in a picture of her in, a, in an old bathing costume and uh you know i mean that, that she was pinup material there's no doubt about it but she was also you know a, a lovely soul as well and I, I did i discovered later that she had a really fantastic singing voice but 
you know, when she used to just sing along to the radio and such like. And, and uh, you know, as I got older, I, I began to hear that the fact that she really could sing. And I also discovered, you know, without really looking, when because when my father died, he left all his bits and pieces behind. And he was an incredible drawer. And I think that's where I get my love of art from as well. But he never shared that because, you know, this was the 50s and 60s when you were supposed to be doing you know, the right thing and not nothing artistic. I mean, I didn't come from an artistic house, but it, as it turned out, they were both artistic in their own quiet way. And good looking as you, I, I yeah. mean, I've gone on a bit about that, but they, oh. were, they were, they're a good looking pair. Yeah, I guess that, I mean, that sounds like, as you painted it, that was kind of life where you grew up. Yeah. What was it, Mark? Yeah. How do you say West. it? Mar- Market Harbour, yes. I mean, it was a tiny little uh, market town, really, where there was a, you know, they brought all the cattle through the streets in the, on a Wednesday and, you know, they roasted a big ox every, you know, every sort of few weeks where everybody came. I mean, it was just, you know, very, uh, it was a lovely sort of gentle upbringing. But I, I, try, I want to get the point across that even with that sort of very secure upbringing, there's a point where something comes into your life and music came into my life and just lit up something in me, which I... It's definitely very difficult to explain, apart from an, an incredible amount of excitement. Well, yeah, you talked about Radio Luxembourg, right? Is that, is that- <laughs> Luxembourg, yeah, yeah. We that's where we got to hear all the American music, and so that formed the bedrock of really what I started listening to. And of course, all the English bands have borrowed and begged from and stolen from all that early American music. I mean, with absolutely no compunction whatsoever. <laughs> Going back to your parents for a second, it almost felt that you felt with with your pull towards music and them wanted you wanting you to have a more traditional career yeah. for stability that you struggle with, even though you, you seem to know that you wanted this to be your path. You seem to struggle a little bit with it with them, because obviously your love for them came through in the book. Yes. Well, I think most parents after the war just wanted everybody to be safe, you know, to to do something kind of normal and secure. I think it's a very natural feeling. I mean, we have, I've got four children and I feel that way about them. And of course they've all turned out to, apart from one, they've all turned out to be very artistic. So I've got to deal with that now, (laughs) which is lovely, but I, I really get what they were about and I, and I appreciated it, but it just wasn't for me. And when somebody says, have you ever worked for a living? Which is rather an insulting thing to say, seeing what I've been doing all my life. But Yeah, I really, I worked for about three years in that timber yard. And that's what I call working for a living, you know, getting up at, being there at eight o'clock in the morning and not leaving until seven o'clock at night and and, uh, meeting very interesting people on the way. Not as interesting as the music industry. Let's face it, as you go through life, you've really got to investigate all sorts of different things because you don't really know what's out there until you go, until you, you go looking in a sense. And I wasn't really looking to experience what the working man was going through in the late 60s, early 70s in, in England. But the unions were very strong and things were changing economically in, in the UK like they were probably in America. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked down at the docks with the dockers and that was an extraordinary experience. So working with them, you know, eating things like, you know, uh, dripping sandwiches. You probably don't even know what they are, but basically <laughs> it's, the, it's the dripping from a turkey or, or a bit of meat on a piece of bread and that's your breakfast. <laughs> But these were really hard people and solid people. So you got a real sense of what was going on out there in the marketplace, you know. Well, I think that's what might have helped Dire Straits in that you got you started a little bit later. You were, uh, as Mark says, actually in the foreword, he says we were lucky we weren't teenagers. Uh, You had some (laughs) life 
you had experienced some life before this took off, and I think that probably helped the band. I, I, I think he put it very well, actually. I, I mean, I can't really put it any better myself, but he's absolutely right. And we talked about it on a number of occasions, you know, when we're sitting around eating supper together and drinking too much wine. Enjoying and, dripping, uh, yeah. dripping sandwiches. Dripping sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I've got to tell you, they are delicious with a bit of... I mean, I'm not going to that, but let's talk about food. We might n- never stop talking about food. Um, but, you know, I think that if we'd been 17 or 18 and been hit by what was quite a quick thing for us, you know, when we, we success came quite quickly. I think at the age of 18, if you got that on your plate, you'd have had real difficulty dealing with it. But you're quite right. I think a little bit of history behind you and dealing with different kinds of people, you know, you sort of understand how life fits together. And um, we'd both been doing different things and, and working and, you know, earning a living and doing and meeting different kinds of people. So we we basically understood the process a bit better than if we were 18. I mean, I didn't do anything when I was 18. I'm, but basically, you just want to, you know, you want to drink things and meet girls. I mean, and, and then try and join a rock and roll band. <laughs> All right. We're going to stop it right here. We're talking with John Ilsley of Dire Straits. We're going to take a short break. But of course, we will be right back. We're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest today, John Ilsley. You were so into music, you actually had a record store initially. <laughs> Before Dire Straits, there was, uh, what, what was the name yeah. of your, your record store? Honky Tonk Records. Okay. okay. <laughs> yes, it was, I wouldn't say it was a massive success. I think it lasted for about four months. I think I lost pretty much all the money I put into it, but it was a it, ma- it gave me the connection to Charlie Gillett, of course, which is very valuable. He was the uh, conduit to putting uh, Dire Straits on the radio. I find it very interesting. I don't know about how you see how things happen in your life, but coincidence is one thing, but you have to put yourself in a position where things happen. And the de- decisions you make to change the way you live are quite important when you look back on them you think oh well that happened because you did this and then that happened because you put that there and you did and so it's all relevant i mean i would not have met mark if i hadn't stopped my job gone to university to do sociology at the age of 23 which is quite late to go to college in in the uk you know no money got a council flat because i couldn't live anywhere else needed a flatmate david Knopfler moves in i meet mark Bingo, you know, and as soon as I met him, I thought, I'm I'm going to know this bloke for the rest of my life. So, you know, what you do in life actually creates other things in your life. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, when you look back, you could see kind of a through line, but at the time it it all seems kind of random, but it clearly is not. I think there's a bit of random, but I think you you, you kind of make your own journey in a way. Yeah. I've never been one for taking the safe path, I have to say, which probably drives my wife completely bonkers. But I'd rather, you know, not take risks, but do something that is not predictable in order to find out, you know, what's at the end of it, really. And that's where music comes into its own, because every time you make a record or write a song, you are starting something fresh and you're taking, not taking risks, but you're investigating, if you like, another way of saying something. 
I mean, you know, I sort of see musicians, I mean, in the way that artists work. For instance, when somebody says, what do you think of Bob Dylan? I say, well, to me, he's the Picasso of music because he continually takes risks, which is what Picasso did. And I see Leonard Cohen as the Matisse of of music. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> he, he, he worked in a certain kind of way and that was the way he worked but Bob always takes risks which is don't always come off but generally speaking he can't help himself I don't think well your initial risk was financial you came into a little bit of money and like what are we going to do what am I going to do with this money and uh, I guess it was a good investment apparently yes we'll have to thank granny for that she, she passed away or died at a very convenient moment. Really. <laughs> That's, yeah. I guess if it had to happen. <laughs> yeah. Like. Uh, yeah, she she, had, she was a good age, but and I, we didn't have any money at all. I mean, we, at that particular time, we were probably getting 25 quid, 25, which would have been about, I suppose in those days, 50 bucks to play a gig. You know, it costs you 40 to do it. And suddenly to get 500 pounds appear in your lap, you've got to do something useful for it. And it just happened to coincide with the fact that we were working on songs with Mark and things that he'd written. And it seemed the most appropriate thing to do with it was to actually sort of put it down and, and, and see what it sounded like. It's like investing in your own business. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, you know, because it, it's wonderful when you hear yourself back for the first time, because everybody has the joy of listening to you in the audience, but you yeah. don't know what it sounds like really hmm. you know, until you get it, you put it on a bit of tape and listen back to it. These are wonderful moments. I mean, they, yeah. But, and then the great thing is someone actually liked or You sent it to your friend, Charlie Gillett. Liked it, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, hearing it on the radio, what was that like hearing your music on the radio for the first time? Well, of course, as I say in the book, you know, Mark and I were moving furniture to make a few quid for a mate. And so we didn't actually hear it the first time it was played. And we went into the pub that night and everybody went, well, cheers, guys, you're on the radio today. And we went, what? What do you mean we're on the radio? Yeah, Charlie played the track. And I mean, that really, I suppose you could say, was a massive break because it, it was difficult to get on. It was, I mean, Charlie would have been the only one person who you would think would have played it because it was so different from everything else that was out there at that time, of course, you know, in the middle of the punk scene that was going on in, in the UK. And, and and I don't know what you called it in America, New Wave or what did you call it? I mean, yeah, same thing. Both punk and new yes, wave, yeah. New wave, punk, whatever. And, you know, it was a very aggressive kind of music. And, and, and so Charlie would play, was playing a lot of American music, but also a lot of bands that weren't in that punk genre. He left that to other DJs to play. So there was very few outlets where to put your music at that time. Thankfully, he, he liked it and um, played it on the radio. And, and the rest is his. And the rest And the re- yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
I'm kind of curious with the demo. All of those songs ended up on the debut, except for for David's. And was that kind of the the seeds of like, okay, did that bother David? I, I'm kind of curious as to why something like a, a song that you feel was strong enough to be on the demo doesn't make it onto the you know this, the debut, yeah. and and how that person absorbs that disappointment. I'm sure David felt that. Um, he probably did, but uh, you know you have to be very philosophical about this because the fact of the matter is, it's all very well everybody writing songs in a band, but if they're not as good as what somebody else is writing then there's no point in putting it on the record and the fact remains is that you know mark was writing better songs than i was and better songs than david was so it's if you want to be generous and say yeah we'll put all this other stuff on even though it's not as good as this then do it but there's not much point in that if you're trying to make something as best as you possibly can then let the person who's writing the best songs you know write them and thankfully with mark we had a you know a, a fabulous uh, songwriter as you're telling the stories about like we're moving furniture this sounds like money for nothing you know like we, we <laughs> you know like you guys live that story on the other you were on both sides of this you know well, we didn't have much money. I mean, it was, if you wanted to go and drink beer and eat, eat some half decent food, you know, you you had to go and earn some money. And you know, we were we were proud people. We weren't going to go to the state for it. We didn't we didn't think that was appropriate because we felt well, if we can do some work and we can get some money for it, so be it. Was it your first tour with Talking Heads? Was it your first actual tour? Yeah, yeah. That was great fun. That was great fun. And you were very complimentary about Tina Weymouth. <laughs> well, the thing about bass players is that, you know, there's, a, there's lot, lots and lots of great bass players. And she, was, she just had this lovely, unique approach, which was very much Talking Heads. And this is what made them a great band, is all of those people involved in that band, the same way with the Straits, they all had a certain style about them, which made it work. And Tina had that. Just sounded like a very rewarding experience. Yeah, well, we, we, we loved being with them. I mean, it was, it, was, <laughs> it was quite an odd sort of thing to do. But, but for us, it, was, it gave us a chance to in front, play in front of much bigger audiences and also see what a successful, I don't know how successful they were in America at that particular point in time. They were probably, they were quite well known in, in New York and such, weren't they? And, or, yeah uh, more so yeah. It, was, it was growing yeah and that album 77 was a was a great record and psycho killer was a great track of course and, and you need you need one track to att- get, get people's attention as we know and uh yeah we really enjoyed the tour i mean uh, we uh, we liked them a lot i mean david's a very unusual man but i, I you know he's you've got you've got to understand that's what makes things work is you, you've got a you, you know you've got the solid base of the, all the um characters involved but you you know there was a sort of quirkiness about david which was which would what made them different yeah it is as you've touched on it's kind of dire straits in 78 you know the music is going in one direction and dire straits is kind of um, I, I don't know if you would call it mainstream but they're they're playing straight ahead rock and roll I guess that's, that might be why you might have been surprised by the uh, immediate attention that your first 
album got it's like you, you tested in in the netherlands or what, what was the, the <laughs> what was that about like how do you find out how successful a record is you take it to the netherlands is that true it's peculiar isn't it i mean i think that the record companies were using holland as a sort of testing base and i only realized that a few years later i didn't really know at the time so it was a bit of a shock when we, we got the phone call and they, and they said you've you sold 25,000 copies, which was an astronomical sum because the record company said they would be very happy if the first album sold 5,000 copies. Right. That's crazy. In total. In yeah, total. Right. I thought that was a bit mean-spirited, but anyway. <laughs> um, obviously, they sold a few more since then, but so to get the phone call and say you've, you've sold 25,000 copies in, in Holland was, was quite shocking and Mark's comment was, oh no, yelled at him in the sitting room. He said, yes, and I'm a Dutchman, which is kind of a say, you know, yeah, absolutely. And I'm Napoleon or whatever. Like it was made up. But uh, and, you- and I think that was sort of a bit of a, what it gave you was a first taste of what it was like to be successful. You know, you weren't playing in a club anymore. You were suddenly on the main TV show in Holland. We were miming, obviously, to Salt to Swing. Yeah. And suddenly that, you know, two or three million people watched that program and, and then all, sort, all hell broke loose. But I think it's, you know, when you get success like that, you, you've either, you either take it or you, or you kind of are suspicious of it. But we took it and ran with it. And I think that Mark and I, as, as he quite rightly said in the book, you know, that, you know, he and I did enjoy the successful part of it. We didn't like the fame bit of it, but we love the successful bit of it because there is nothing like being successful and with something that other people love, you know, it's a two-way thing. And it's, and uh, that makes it, gives it a much more kind of solidarity, I think. In other words, if you're successful at selling telephones or something like that, or cars, it's a different thing than successful at selling uh, music. That's the way I would see it anyway. And so it was, it was a wonderful taste of success. It was complete chaos. And we came back after a weekend absolutely exhausted. They didn't allow us to sleep. They just interviewed us to death, basically. <laughs> Thank um, you, Brennan. Adrenaline. You learned slowly that actually you, can, you have to handle these things right from the word go so it doesn't get out of control. Yeah, one of the learning things I think you you mentioned going to the Roxy and taking the limo and having an expensive dinner and then realizing, oh wait, I think we're paying for this. <laughs> yes, well, of course you think it's all it's all a present, but then you get then you, you know, your manager tells you, well, you know that limo you took last week and that and that hotel you stayed at and all that food you ate and the drink anyway. But yeah. I'm- I've always wondered, because I've heard other artists say this, talk about how the costs always end up coming back to them if they would have made the same choices had they known. Yeah, probably. No, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, at the, at the bottom at the bottom line in New York, the, the record company sent us around a limo, and they did pay for that, I have to say. But we felt so embarrassed pulling up in front. We told them to go around the back of the, yeah. back of the place, and then we, we, walked, we walked past the crowd getting in, and they all looked at us and went, that's the band, isn't it? <laughs> And we just said hello to everybody. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, it, I think it all comes down to the credibility, really. I mean, it has, it's a question of how you want to be seen by your public, yeah. I think, how you show yourselves. I would say that we're quite modest people, and we, but as I say, we, we, do, we, we enjoy the success, and there's nothing wrong with that. 
I don't know. But you also had a great manager to, to kind of lead your <laughs> way. I, um, <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, about Ed. Who's this this guy that's I, – I would imagine he, you would consider him a member of Dire Straits. Yes. I mean, I think that, that uh, you know, if you've got a good manager, he is he's part of the – he's definitely part of the team and he goes the whole – whole way with you for him he was learning on the on the job too in a sense because he was working for a, a booking agency at the time and he basically as soon as he saw the band he went up to the record company and said i want to manage this lot and they and this was his first managerial job so he was finding his way as it turned out he was really rather good at it <laughs> but i think it helped considerably that we had a, a degree of success early on so it gave him a bit more weight you know when he went asking for things and uh, to, to help with the band and everything you know doing deals and he's a, he was a great deal maker i mean i've got a lot of respect for ed he could drive you completely nuts on occasions but he's a great storyteller and kept us amused for hours on the road and great raconteur and he knew the business. He knew, uh, he, he basically, Peter Grant from Led Zeppelin was his mentor. <laughs> but of course, Peter Grant was slightly slightly more explosive than Ed, I think. <laughs> That's all right. You mentioned in your first US tour, you said 51 shows in 38 days. Is that, that's accurate? Yeah. That's, that is how you got through the US? Well, in, in those days, you, you probably remember, you played in these... Um, I don't know what they call them though. There's a name for them in the states where you where they they do two shows a night and you. So that's what we were doing. We'd go on at sort of eight o'clock till eight thirty, take half an hour off. One audience would go out, and then another audience would come in. They sort of uh, it was sort of double your money time sort of thing. I think with you know with the venue. The biggest problem was that when we well, it wasn't a problem obviously when we got to the states and the and the album was riding high and the single was riding high. The promoters were very keen, very, very keen to, to change into bigger places because they thought, this is crazy. You're playing the bottom line and you and the album's number four in the charts. Are you mad? But we said, no, no, we, we've booked these and, and, and we're going to do them. We'll come back later and do and do bigger shows later on. But it felt right at the time to, to stick with what we'd planned. And I think that was the right thing to do. Yeah, it just builds up more anticipation for when you return. And so it becomes what they call a hot ticket, I think, in America. Yeah. They, call it, they call it a hot ticket in the UK as well. So we've stolen that from you as well. But <laughs> um, <laughs> You made the scalpers happy with those small shows, I'm sure, back in the day. Yeah. Oh, yes, that, that's, that is the only problem. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> it's an endless problem, even if you're playing a 20,000-seater. Yeah an endless problem it's very difficult to deal with it very very difficult to deal with it yeah well we do like to talk to people about the ones that played live aid and their experience <laughs> i mean that that's kind of like our woodstock now you played in between you two and queen which is just uh that that's that's crazy to be in. that's mind. quite a sandwich there what was your experience at live aid well i think there were quite a few sandwiches that day to be honest well, that's I mean, yeah. people, people were put in all sorts of weird places Ours was was a practical thing. I mean, Bob Geldof basically he was absolutely insistent we were to play. Well, we 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 had thirteen dates sold out at the arena, which holds twelve thousand people, already booked months in advance. In advance, and he 
He said, you've, you've got to play. You've got to play this gig. That I'm not, this Live Aid is not going to go on unless you play. You realise that, don't you? <laughs> we, we said, well, we just, okay, well, all we can do is, he said, you've got to headline it. We can, I said, we can't do that, you know. And, and uh, so we, a deal was struck where we'd, we'd, we'd come across the car park after sound checking at the, you know, the arena, play the gig, to, to a couple of songs, and then go back and play the gig. And <laughs> we just walked across the car park. <laughs> it's kind of weird. <laughs> but actually... As I say, I, I think I said it in the book, I thank goodness we didn't have to follow Queen. Right. <laughs> because, you know, that was an unbelievable performance. Were you at the, uh, like, on the side of the stage watching that, watching Queen? No, we'd gone back to, we'd You'd, gone back to, to, to the arena. To so the, you were, you were the, done. So you, you, you literally, like, arrived, played your 20 yeah. minutes, and then bolted back for, for your other show. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we were backstage for a very short period of time. We met a few people. I mean, it would have been great to spend a bit more time there, but there was just there was no choice. We we came on, did our thing, and then and then and disappeared. So didn't see any of the stuff until oh later when you know check it out on the on the on the TV. Yeah, I mean that performance by Queen was something else. Yeah, so you guys had no idea that like you know you two was a ama- you know <laughs> no, what what exactly no, no. was going on. Yeah, that, well, that's great. And then you had. You played before eighty thousand people, and like, there's another, you know, twelve thousand people waiting for for us. We got to get going. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they they bought the tickets, and we felt that was the best thing to do. And I think it was fine, and under the circumstances, you know, absolutely fine, completely fine. I think that's very respectful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is the English way, right? That's the English way. Yeah. Yes, proper. I don't know it's English. It's just the way it was. You know, but I mean, Bob Geldof was a force to be reckoned with. You, you couldn't. If there's some people, we just can't say no to, and he's one of them. You know, he was he's most good. insistent, and quite rightly was recognised for it. I mean, it, it was a, it was a very rude awakening to the rest of the world what was going on out there. Yeah, but I think every band put their egos to bed for the day and uh, just got on with it. And the most nerve wracking thing I think was for all the crews trying to get the equipment to work in between each act because. Yeah. There was no sound check. He just walked on and picked a guitar and hoped it worked. It worked, you know. And of course, I think McCartney's microphone wasn't working for some of the time and things like that. But that's it. You, you know, you, if you do those things, you take a risk. Yeah. Okay. I do have to ask you about something that's that's not in your book, and it's uh, about the Rock Hall and that that <laughs> whole situation. I mean, it's. I mean, it, you, the book is called my, uh, you know, my life in dire straits. But and you would think that. The Rock Hall would be the culmination, like that's that's how you would end it. But it wasn't mentioned at all, as we all know. It, uh, it was kind of it was a, as you mentioned in your Rock Hall speech. It was this is a little awkward, because uh, <laughs> was it that the other members of Dire Straits just didn't realize the importance of being inducted into the Rock Hall is, or can you just enlighten us a little bit as to what <laughs> what happened? Well, put very simply, what happened was that. The people who were running the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame decided who they wanted to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they decided, without talking to us at all, without consulting us, that they wanted the original band to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they've done this before with bands that have broken up tens of years ago. And they think that by saying, we want the original band to get back together and come to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that that's going to happen. Well, it doesn't work like that. You know, Mark quite rightly, uh, you know, uh, said, I I don't feel comfortable with this. And neither did I. It felt very odd 
to suddenly invite David and Pick, who we pretty much lost contact with completely, apart from the occasional uh, email now and again, to suddenly put those two people back together in a situation across the world and, and try and make that work. It seemed just really odd. And so I, I, Mark said, well, he said, I, I don't really feel comfortable with this, to be frank. And I said, well, neither do I, mate. But, you know, and he said, I'm, I'm definitely not going. And I had to think about it quite carefully. The problem with him not going was the fact that that meant that it was going to be very difficult to get somebody to induct us into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it all got a bit weird at one point. I don't think they handled it very well, to be honest. So I just said to them the morning of the thing, well, if you can't find anybody to induct us into this thing that you've got here, I'm going to do it. And they went, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, you give me no choice. Right. <laughs> you give me absolutely no choice. And I got, a, I got a bit angry about it at one point, and I, thought, and I stopped myself and I said, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do this thing, and if you don't want me to do it, then we probably won't do it at all. So it's up to you. And uh, in the end, they said, okay. It was kind of weird, but, you know, you suddenly you have to realize that it's going to go on, and you just have to be grown up about it. For me, it was a recognition by a pretty important organization of the band's history and kind of a celebration you know of what we had achieved so i wanted to go there and represent the band and say thank you very sim simple as that and i would have loved to have played and to be perfectly frank you know we could have got something organized if they'd have, if they'd have um have been amenable to that but they they were certain members of the rock and roll hall of fame were being pretty damned awkward if i'm if i'm perfectly honest i'm very happy to say that so that's that, that's, <laughs> that's why and is that why you didn't want to put it in the book. It's just that it was just too. It was it was all too complicated and political, and just got a bit sort of out of control. And I I just didn't want to go there, really, to be honest. I wanted this book to be a celebration rather than a, rather than an annoyance. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. But being in the rock hall is a is 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 somewhat of a celebration. But are you you're saying that it's their responsibility to come up with somebody to induct you? Yeah. And they yeah, absolutely. And they never absolutely. Did. And also, I think it's, it would be more sensible to actually approach the main people, Mark and myself, in the band and say, how would you like this to be? All right. Yeah. Well, they didn't, which is kind of weird. It is, but yeah. yeah. They had their own reasons. They, they thought that they had the power, mm -hmm. in inverted commas, to do something that nobody else could do in 25 years get the original band back together. Yeah. So good luck with that. That was, hasn't always turned out well for them. Well, you know, you well, I don't know whether anybody's, you know, inducted themselves into the Hall of Fame before well, or after. I have no idea. You set a precedence. That's the first time. So that's that's why Dire well, Straits will be memorable. <laughs> no. uh, I did. I did enjoy a lot of it, I have to say, yeah. but it was it was it was a little odd. <laughs> Are Mark and David on the on the outs, or as as you alluded to, or still, is it just a is it a, a Davies type? You know, like brothers and bands just <laughs> just never get along. Is that the it's the old well, cliche? They're, they're they're completely different kinds of people. Uh -huh. It's as simple as that. They're very different kinds of people, and I think that uh, let's just leave it at that. I mean, I think okay. it's it's tough for both of them. It's but tough for both of them. You know, I think it's it's a shame, but it is what it is. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Did he continue to play music? After he left, oh, David! David's got quite a few solo albums out to his name. Yeah, didn't you? You played on one of them. You and Mark both played on. 
Yes, on the first one. David's, you know, he's been very active ever since he left the band. I think it's exactly what he what he needed. I mean, it, it, it was very difficult when he left because I was obviously great friends with both of them. But I could see what just wasn't going to work for the future of the band with all that tension going on. And, um, and so the inevitable happened and it was difficult. But yeah, David went on to make many, has made many records and he, is, he goes touring, well, he hasn't obviously toured for the last two years. Yeah. Nobody has. You know, often when I'm going around the circuit, I often see his name in places. He's very active, yeah. He's become a good, nice piano player and a guitar player, so maybe it forced him into doing something for himself, you know, rather than, you know, behind his brother. Yeah, it sounds like that's that's the way he kind of wanted it, yeah. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I mean, I never really had a conversation with him about it, to be honest. I mean, I just let let it be. But he definitely went out and, and, and made use of that moment to, to actually you know, improve himself, improve his songwriting, improve his piano playing and guitar playing, you know. So something good came out of it. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. I guess at the end of the Brothers in Arms tour, it was an, or you thought it was inevitable that, that the band was going to break up. What, it, it's, 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 what did you see that was going on? And like, well, th- this, is, this has done its run. We've, I mean, you're pretty much the biggest band in the world. Like, all right, this is, we're done. This is, it's over. You, you said, Mark, you said you and Mark said it felt obvious to both of you. It, there is a problem when you have a, an album like Brothers in Arms, in a sense. It sets a precedent, which is difficult to ignore. And I think that certainly, I mean, I've, I felt that, well, apart from being exhausted, I felt that maybe this was, you know, the moment when, you know, we'd done everything we, we, we could possibly do. So it was, it was very unexpected. And, you know, we, we stayed friends and we hang out together and all the rest of it. And, you know, he's worked on some of my stuff. And I, I didn't, I was really wasn't expecting, you know, over lunch one day to be asked to, you know, put the band back together again. Well, not put the band back together again, but actually make another record, you know, because he felt he had songs that we should, we should do, you know, rather than him do on his own. So we did. And, uh, and then we went, <laughs> we went off and did the most <laughs> extraordinary tour known to man. So then why end this then? I mean, if, if, if you guys are still, you know, the love of the music, you guys are playing well together, why, is, why put it into that? Well, I think, that you, I, you, I think that when you feel you've done everything that is useful you can do with this band, you know, within this unit as it was, and it, it felt great, it, it's really good to just leave that as a, as a shape there and say, right, that was that. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to go back to painting again. Mm. And I, I, I really, I hung the bass up for, oh my God, about six months before somebody said, will you come and play on something? 
I just wanted to get away from the whole thing. And I, and I knew that Mark wanted to uh, get into, into doing different kinds of music and different things. And I completely appreciated that. And so, you, you know, you grow, you grow into a different space in a way. And I, you know, and, and I think in some ways it's probably kept our friendship alive. The fact that we mm. have, have stopped that big thing, you know, yeah, of course we put the band back together and you can go and sell this and sell that and do everything. But yeah, yes, so what? I mean, you know, it's kind of been done. I mean, you've got to be careful. You don't, you don't keep doing comeback tours all the time. You know, it's, you know, yeah. I don't know how many people I know that have done six or seven, the final tour. Farewell tours. Yeah. <laughs> Farewell tours. I mean, Elton's quite good at that. But Yeah, he is. I um, guess it, yeah, I guess it is kind of like a painting. Like, all right, well, how do I know, how do you know you're done with a painting? Like, well, look, I mean, we can't, add, I am not going to add any more to this. It that's is a done. very big subject you're talking oh, about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not being artists, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's interesting when you know when you're done with a song, the song sort of just says, okay, you've finished with me now, that's it. And it's the same way with a painting. The painting, so you have a conversation with the canvas, really, essentially, and, it's, and it tells you when, when you're done. And, and if you go on, then you've ruined it. We call uh, that a hallucination, when the painting tells you you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably, yeah. One of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, really, I mean, just to get back to that for a moment, is because I wanted to celebrate... A friendship. I wanted to celebrate a, a remarkable kind of moment in uh, musically for not just us, but for everybody who listened to the music, and for all those people that worked with us over the years and made this thing happen. Because I don't think people really realise what goes on behind all those, you know, the, the, that lovely thing to see people on stage. And I mean, there's so many people you have to sort of recognise and appreciate on the way. And it gave me a ch- it gave me a chance to say something about him, which he wouldn't say himself, <laughs> as well, because he's a very modest man. He's also an incredibly funny person. I don't know whether you know that, but I don't think people know he's one of the funniest people I know. Also, okay, so besides a painter and uh, artist, uh, musician, you own a pub. Can you tell us <laughs> t- that was the last line in the book? It's like, and John also owns a pub. East End Arms. I've ha- I've had it for thirty two years. And do you play there? Is that, the, or is it just a place to play darts and uh, drink a pint? I know I have played there a few times. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to go and play there in December, just for a bit of fun. It's it's a very small, very modest place. It's just for the locals, the local people. You know, the the, the pub thing is quite a unique thing to the UK, and uh, we've lost a lot during the, this lockdown business that's been going on. A lot of them have gone out of business. I've kept mine going and uh, I will continue to keep it going because it's a very valuable part of the community. I feel much more connected to things having got having got the pub. It's a bit of a pain in the arse sometimes. Because <laughs> things, things happen, you know, you've got individuals which you might want to deal with in a different way than you would normally, but <laughs> generally speaking, it's been, it's been a lot of fun and um, drives me mad sometimes, but, you know. I mean, it's every schoolboy's dream, isn't it, to sort of, sure, you know, join a rock and roll band and then open a pub. All right. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so thank you so much. The book, again, it's out now, My Life in Dire Straits. We really enjoyed going through this book and, you know, I, I dug up all my uh, Dire Straits records again and just like, oh, my God, you, you forget yep. how what a great band this is. And it's, it still is. This music holds we've up. We've never forgotten. Yeah, the music Same. really holds up. 
Yes, um, yes, it's it's uh, seems to have legs, as they say. <laughs> There's a couple of things about that, and I think essentially, if anybody asks me what makes a good band, I say it's the songs they've got, but also it's the feel of the band and how that translates to other people. It's as simple as that: good songs and good feel. Yes, and your solid yeah. solid rock basis. That's what you need. Just someone to, <laughs> to hold it down. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, it, it's you know, it, it for me. Writing songs is is about giving other people a different sense of reality, like like a painting. A, a painting is a different sense of reality. You know, you're you're picking up a paintbrush and you're you're interpreting the world differently for somebody else to look at. Well, it's yourself initially, of course, obviously. Yeah. And a song does that. And of course, some songs are quite abstract, and some you know, Bob Dylan's, you know, has got a bit more abstraction in his in his songwriting if you like put it in a literal sense like comparing it with the painting and some songs are incredibly obvious but i think it's just another way of looking at reality and sharing sharing the world in a different way with other people um i might have to say uh, cheerio actually bye bye (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you so much for doing this this is it was such a such a pleasure and really enjoyed the book well i enjoyed talking to you thank you very much thanks for your kind words it's appreciate it's been a pleasure Well, that was kind of fun talking to Dire Straits bassist John Ilsley and learning all about his amazing career with the band. That was a a thrill for me. And you remember listening to Dire Straits when you were when you were a young teen. Yeah, they were one of my uh, first bands that I kind of discovered because they were played on Top 40. I heard them on 64 KFI. They played yes. Sultans of Swing. They are one of the bands, this is this is my observation, and maybe this is unique to my own family, but they're one of the bands that seem to straddle generations because my parents loved Dire Straits, and I also loved Dire Straits at the same time, and it wasn't a case of, you know, I was turned on to Dire Straits by my parents. We both just had a genuine love for the music. As we, we talked with them, and we mentioned in 1978, uh, music was changing, but Dire Straits was kind of doing something completely at that time was something different just playing straight ahead rock and roll like great guitar solos and thoughtful lyrics so uh they straddled that line between uh, the youth culture and uh you know, people that were older than us the older weird. rockers the older rockers yeah <laughs> anyway it's always fun to talk to a rock hall member uh we don't get to do that too often so very, that was very cool book is a is a treat i really enjoyed his his perspective on the band and the touring and everything so Highly recommend. I give it a thumbs up. All right. A holly thumbs up for my life in dire straits. We're going to be chopping bits of this interview up, which you will find on our YouTube page. And where would one find that? All you have to do is search for What Difference Does It Make podcast, and you will find lots of outtakes from this interview and many, many more. Please subscribe is all I can say. Yes. Like and subscribe. We are a proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. And I invite you to check out all of their offerings as well. Thank you to Shannon Donnelly of Diversion Books for helping set us up with John Ilsley. Uh, really appreciate it. Again, the book is My Life in Dire Straits with John Ilsley. Until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 